You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It is, it's, I, it is an honor, honestly, to be here this morning. I uh, don't, don't get to do this very often. Unfortunately, it's, it's one of the, the downsides of the job that, you know, I'm kind of busy most Sundays, so I don't get to connect with other communities that often. And so a moment like this is something pretty special and actually very sacred for me, even, even just through the worship, just a sense of connecting with the body of Christ, with the spirit that dwells within us, and feeling that same sense of at home that I feel in my own church. It's such an incredible thing, and it never, never ceases to amaze me how powerful that is, just the sense that we are one family. Um, I am uh, going to try not to be too long-winded, so that's not really my style usually, so you're going to be so grateful when Greg comes back up here and preaches his length, so this morning, though, I, uh, you guys don't know me very well, probably most of you. I know a few of you. Um, I've been in ministry for a few years. I'd said I will never be a pastor. That's kind of my, my thing. Like, it seems like it's a pretty common theme with most pastors. We've said we will never be pastors, and then suddenly God has some other things in mind. And for me, the reason I said it is because I'm a pastor's kid. My dad is a pastor. He pastors currently in Vancouver at a church there. He had said the same words, I'll never be a pastor. And, and he had said it because my grandfather is also a pastor. <laughs> he currently is 84 years old and planted a church at 80, his 17th church I think he's planted in his life, and he's still pastoring right now. The story goes that my, my great-grandfather was a deacon in a church, uh, up in the mountains in Jamaica, and his senior pastor suddenly died, and he filled in as the interim for 20 years. So so the story really in my family is technically, if we go back far enough, I, I guess as far as we know, I'm about a fifth generation pastor. And, and I said I never wanted to do it because I'm so different than my dad, and my dad's different than my grandfather. And so the journey for me has really been one of trying to figure out who I am, what it means to be who God has called me to be, which I think is the journey for all of us, that every one of us, whether you are a pastor in a church or a person working in a bank or a mom, or there is this journey that we are all on trying to discover what does it mean to be who God created us to be. I've been thinking, though, there is something unique about this moment in history, and you don't have to agree with me, but, but I, I think we are in an incredible moment as the church right now. I think that that some would even argue that this kind of feels like and could, could potentially be kind of another reforming of the church. We won't use the other term, but, but that something is, is brewing, that God is shaping something in his body right now. That, that as we look at the story of the church in Canada, it's, it's struggling to say the least overall. And, and, and that's, that's certainly not true across every individual congregation, but as you look at the story of Christianity, we see that in Canada there has been a massive shift, especially with young adults leaving the church. And, and in the midst of that, this, this does feel some, like something that happened a few years back, a few hundred years back, when the church was kind of struggling and maybe a little bit off course with some of the things, and, 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 and Christ came in and transformed some things and, and, and kind of helped us get into a space where we could become a little healthier. I think that's what is happening now. But I was thinking, I was, I was telling my kids uh, um, this well-known nursery rhyme. 
it dawned on me that, that some of the story is rooted right in the very foundation that we're programmed with, even as kids. Anybody remember this little thing? You put your hands together and you make this little thing. Remember how it goes? How's it go again? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Literally from the very beginning, though, we're programming everyone to think that this is the church. This isn't the church. This is the church, isn't it? But suddenly somehow in our story, this, this, this idea that, that the church is connected to this, though we all know it in our heads, so often in our lives, in our expression, we don't live that story. We live it in the context of, of the moments where we get to gather in this, certainly, and, and certainly there are other moments, but that, that idea that we are the church, I don't know, we, it's hard to hold on to, especially in our culture right now. I was uh, thinking about this, though, and if you think back to uh, you know, the early church, this guy named Stephen in Acts 7 preaches this incredible sermon. He's uh, really a nobody. We don't know anything about him. We just know he was chosen. It says that he had the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was one of seven guys chosen to, to deal with uh, a need to feed widows. That was their church was actively working out in the community, and they chose seven people to make sure they could do this more effectively. Well, well, one of these guys, Stephen, stands up and has this moment where he's, he's taken before some of the religious leaders of the day, and he preaches this epic sermon. So if you want to read Acts 7, if you haven't before, he preaches this amazing, incredible sermon, laying out the story of history, of, of what God has done for the people, talking about Moses and others. And then and I actually think that most of the people in the room were tracking with him until he got to this part. In Acts 7:48, he says this. However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 66, I think it is, where, where it says this. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Did my hands both make the heavens and the earth? You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. So he basically finishes his sermon with a huge kick in the... With a, I'm not going to do that this morning to you. But the words that he spoke were so powerful and so revolutionary, it shifted some thinking in people's minds. It went so against what they understood at the time, though. The irony is one of the people standing in that moment was Saul, who later would be Paul, and who would later write in 1 Corinthians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When people look at our lives, I think... That's probably what they should see, right? Now, my wife and I, we got married pretty young. We got married at 20 years old, the ripe old age of 20. We were one of those, some of those crazy high school sweethearts that fell in love and uh, engaged at 18 and a half. We had a good time of courting before. And, and when we got married, though, I had, I had moved out, had an incredible opportunity to move into a really cheap basement suite. And so I had moved out about 18 and was living in this basement suite, and, and as a, you know, a young bachelor living by myself in this basement suite, I had de- decorated it 
in early, I don't know, we'll call it teen angst. I don't know, whatever it was. But at the time, you know, posters were the thing for me. I loved posters. I had the craziest, most epic poster collection. So my entire basement suite was covered with posters that reflected everything I loved. So I had my Barry Sanders poster because I'm a huge football fan. I had, had a Michael Jordan one, had lots of movie posters. I had some, some musicians and some band posters. But my whole house was, my whole suite was designed in this. Can anyone guess that my wife, when we got married and she moved into the basement suite, maybe had some different ideas. And she moved in and immediately I'm like, well, you know, these can stay and you can have... You know, this little section on the wall didn't work exactly, but, but you know, it's amazing that, that sense of over time, you know, if you walked into my house today, you would, you would certainly see some things in my house that represent me, that anyone that walks into my house would see the two or three things. No, I'm kidding. There's more than that. She, she is, has incredible taste in decorating though, but, but certainly our house reflects both of us because we live there. And, and you could walk in and say, okay, this is the kind of thing that you like, Frank. And, and this stuff, I can see, must be with you. And if you tripped over some toys, you'd see that my kids also live there. And there are some things that, that you could clearly see that these are what my kids are like. This is what they're into. And, and I think that story is really when we talk about the story of, of our lives being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That everywhere we go, when people interact with us, they should probably have a sense that the Holy Spirit lives there. Is that true? There would probably be some things that, that people around us would say, oh, right, that, that clearly fits with the story of the Spirit living in you. So, the question I found myself asking, what does, so what does early Holy Spirit decor look like in a life? If you have a Bible and if you want to follow along, a very well-known chunk of Scripture is found in Galatians 5. Um, Galatians 5 Verse 22, you'd probably know it well. I think it's probably one of the best explanations for what I think the decor of the Holy Spirit in our lives would look like. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against this, there is no law against these things, and I am so glad there is no law against joy. If we live by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit, then, is what it says in verse 25. So the story of the Spirit in us, I love this passage because I think it lays out to me what the decor of the Holy Spirit in our lives look like. That this is what the world should encounter in us. And and when you think about this story of the the Holy Spirit and, and the fruit of the Spirit, in our church right now, we're actually going through a series unpacking each of these incredible fruits. But but I, I'd heard it once from a professor that I was with that, that really if you read the heart of this passage and if you translate it back, it's, really it's describing one fruit. That, that essentially that, that when it starts with the fruit of the Spirit is love, that it really, love is the fruit and all of the rest of the stuff are actually unique flavors and expressions of that story of love. Why is that true? If you read in 1 John 4, what does it say? God is love. And so the, the Holy Spirit in us, it really should be all about love. That people encounter the fruit of love that flows from us, that grows in our lives so naturally. The rest of it is, is all unique flavors. I kind of think of it like an orange. An orange 
has multiple different flavors in it. Though we don't think of it that way. There are unique little flavors. If you were to scratch off a little of the zest on the outside, right, you get a unique flavor that's a little bitter, but, but still is useful. If you've ever baked, there's some ways you can use that as well. If you go a little bit deeper, you find that kind of white stuff. You know, the reason why we buy them mandarin oranges, so they don't stick to the good part, right? But you, if you were to eat that, it would taste slightly different than the other parts of the orange. You go a little deeper, and you have the wedges of the orange that, that certainly have a very lovely, unique taste that we love. And if you were to eat the seeds, they would taste slightly different as well. In some ways, that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. That all of this comes down to love and all of these beautiful, unique flavors within it. But each of those unique things can be cultivated in our lives as well. Anybody know what makes a fruit a fruit? Seeds. Yeah, it's the seeds. So, so a fruit is the seed-bearing part of a plant or a tree, right? So, so there's the funny things that we don't think of as fruits, right? Like coffee. I have my fruit every day, regularly. <laughs> Pumpkins and and all these other incredible, unique things, tomatoes, all of these things that we know are fruits because, because of the seed. Anybody know what the definition of a vegetable is? Anything that's not good like a fruit? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Eat your vegetables, kids. Vegetables are basically just any other edible part of a plant. But the fruit is important because the story of the fruit is that it carries the whole story of that plant that can be reproduced and shared over and over and over again. I was thinking about the sense that when we see in Scripture the story of what the Spirit pours out into our lives, there are, in Corinthians, you can read about this incredible list of gifts. Now, gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, are things that are poured out freely into our lives. That, that the Spirit releases these incredible, incredible abilities and, and, and things that, that we don't necessarily earn or deserve, but the story of the Spirit in our lives is that these gifts are given, as one pastor says, without repentance, that, that there is this incredible story of gifts that come from the Spirit that we don't do anything to get. Yet, for some reason, when we get to this list, they call them fruits. Not gifts, but fruits. Now, when you think about fruit, the thing with fruit is that that for fruit to grow, you actually have to cultivate an environment where that specific thing can grow. Is that true? I think so. So I was thinking about this list, and I'm going to try to fly through this sermon as quickly as I can, but but I was thinking about the story in our lives of, of peace, and we'll use that as an example for that when we talk about peace in our lives and, and the outpouring of peace as, as a fruit of the Spirit in our lives, I actually think that it's, it's, it's something that we actually cultivate an environment so that we can connect with it. I was talking with somebody this week, and I don't know if anybody can relate. Uh, it's a busy time of year. For me, it's been an incredibly crazy busy week, a week probably where I didn't find much peace because I was going and going. And as we get closer to Christmas, for some that gets even higher, some it decreases, but, but it's so easy in our world to get so busy and be without peace. But, but the reality is, I think when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit that produces this, it's actually about us cultivating an environment where we can experience peace. It's about creating spaces of rest. That, that there are tangible stories of, of us actively participating with heaven and, and with the Spirit in our lives to, to create an environment where that fruit will naturally be there when we need it. About 
creating healthy rhythms where we take time to rest so that we have peace in our lives. I think the same thing's true with the other ones. Think about joy. If you're lacking joy in your life, you might want to cultivate some fun. I don't know about you, but, but, but cultivating the environment and creating the space where we can experience the fullness of that fruit when we need it, I think is, is a part of what's on our story, our part. That the Spirit is in our lives, but cultivating the right atmosphere helps us to be able to, to connect with these incredible fruits that the Holy Spirit pours into our lives. Chew on that for a bit. Now, I could talk about a whole bunch of the fruits. I mean, this is, there's nine of these great things to talk about. But I wanted to talk just for a couple of minutes on, on one of them. One that I think is really relevant in this season. One that I shared recently in my community to people going, oh, let's talk about patience. Oh. It's this sense of, I don't know, for, for many of us, who here would say they just are naturally patient people? Who would say they struggle with patience? Yeah, it seems like it's part of our lives, our story today, part of our culture in some ways. We live in an instant gratification world. We were just talking about it at the back, that, that patience and waiting for things is just not wired into our cultural story these days, especially when we talk about Christmas and impulsive shopping habits that we may or may not have money to purchase things. So that sense of waiting for things is just not part of our story. But when we talk about patience and the fruit of patience, I think there's lots of people we could look at in the story of the Bible that, that, that you could see them struggle with it, but but see also the fruit of what God would do in their lives as they discovered it. And I don't think there's anyone greater in Scripture that seemed to understand the story of patience than David. Now think about it. This is a guy who was chosen to be king as a young boy or teen, knowing that there's currently a king, and he's got to wait till that story comes. He's, a, he's anointed by Saul to be a king, or sorry, by Samuel to be a king, to take over Saul's job, but... He's got to wait. Now, that season of waiting for him sucked. I'm not going to lie. He went through some incredibly challenging things. And I think, if anything, that as I think about my own story and the things that I'm waiting for, waiting can be very uncomfortable, especially if you're waiting in, in difficult spaces, in difficult seasons. None of us are probably being hunted, trying someone trying to kill us like David had, but... But for many of us, waiting is very, very, very uncomfortable in moments, sometimes very painful. You know, my wife currently uh, is going through a really, the last few years, she's been going through some pretty challenging health things. She's currently uh, been on chemo for the last couple of years. She doesn't have cancer, but she has an autoimmune disease that they're treating with chemo. And she's on oxygen 24 hours a day. And, and, and I know God can heal her. And I actually think he's going to. Yet we wait in this very uncomfortable season. Very painful at times. And I'm sure many of you can relate. Many of you are waiting for things in your story. This season that we are in is all about waiting. That's, that's what Advent is about. But I was thinking about David. And what can we learn from David? Uh, in the early 80s, I'm, a, I'm actually a pretty big U2 fan. In the early 80s, Bono was reportedly reading his Bible one day and then came into the studio and said, guys, for our next album, I have the last song for it. And he pulled open his Bible and he read these words. He said, 
I waited patiently for the Lord. I'm reading from a different translation, but he says, He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and I will sing a new song. And it goes on to describe this story of him waiting. He said, He set my feet on a solid ground, and he's given me a new song to sing, and a hymn of praise to sing to him. Many will see what he has done and will be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. This season of Advent is all about the story of waiting. 16 days from now, it will be the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature will be stirring, not even a mouse. And I was thinking about my kids as this season of waiting is here, and we, my mother-in-law was visiting a few weeks ago. And we did an early Christmas thing. We did the whole Christmas dinner thing. And then we were opening the presents afterwards. And I thought my children were about to die because of the way they shoveled food into their mouths, knowing that they could open the presents afterwards. <laughs> but but I was, it got me thinking about how, how I wait. You know, what, what, what do I do in the seasons where I'm waiting? How do I posture myself? And, and I want to leave you with three Greek words. Well, two Greek and one Hebrew words. Three ancient words that I think fit into this story of waiting and how we can wait well. Uh, the first uh, is a Greek word. Or there, there, are, there are two Greek words, ancient Greek words at least, for time. Anybody know what those two would be? For time. Yes. Anyone? Kronos is the first one. And the second one sometimes shows up in very spiritual communities. Kairos. Kairos moments. Kronos, it literally describes the, like the chronological, sequential movement of time. It's unless you have a DeLorean, time is moving this way. And, and generally speaking, that's basically how we move through this story of Kronos. In a, in a normal everyday, it fits into this whole word Kronos. It's our everyday life, our time that we live in. Now, Kairos is a different story. Kairos is uh, the ancient Greek word that, that means the right, critical, or opportune moment, sometimes even described as the perfect moment. The New Testament, Kairos, uh, means the appointed time of purpose of God. It shows up 86 times in the New Testament, uh, often connected to statements like, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Sometimes refers to opportune moments or seasons, such as a harvest time. So hold those in your mind for a second. Kronos and Kairos. The third word is an ancient Hebrew word that actually showed up in that passage that I just read from, from Psalm 40, and it's, it's the word kava. Kava literally means to look or to wait, to hope, or to expect. It's a verb. And in that passage that I read earlier where it said, I waited patiently for the Lord, the, the actual translation is, I kava, kava for the Lord. I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and he heard my cry. I was talking with someone this week, and we were, we were they're going through a very difficult season as well, and they were questioning, you know, why does God make us wait for things? Anybody ever thought that before? Because you know he can do it, right? 
Why does he make us wait seasons? I think there's lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons. One for sure, I'm going to try to fly through it, but one, he, he's, sometimes the waiting reveals our true motives. Sometimes the things we really want, maybe there's some unhealthy things that are driving that need or that want. Sometimes it's the waiting that transforms our character. That story shows up in Scripture over and over. You think of Moses uh, multiple times, especially the, that first time after he killed somebody, he gets, sends out to the wilderness the first time for 40 years. That, that transformed his character, kind of brushed off those rough edges. And sometimes the waiting is about that. Sometimes waiting is about actually building intimacy and depending on God. Sometimes the seasons of waiting is it because, because it's the moment where we can actually most deeply connect with him. That's one of the things I love about David in the Psalms. You could hear his heart in the midst of those painful moments of waiting. I'm choosing to sing a new song, and he would connect with God. And, and it was more about that story than even what he was waiting for sometimes. And I think that's there's something healthy in that. Unfortunately, many of us kind of function in our world today like spoiled, greedy children, focused more on what our, our rich heavenly father, knowing that knowing that he could do something at any moment, but we totally neglect connecting with him as the giver. I think, though, the biggest reason, the, the, the best reason why he sometimes makes us wait, fits back to that Kronos and Kairos thing, that he actually sees things that we don't see. Even though my best idea of what I think he should do, I throw out the prayer, Lord, do it like this, that best prayer probably still is so far off the ideal of what he could want to do. I don't know if that's true for any of you. When I was a kid, I, I was pretty young, but I watched the movie The Black Stallion. Have you ever seen that movie? I, was, I loved it. I fell in love with horses. And then about seven or eight, I, I had the whole plan worked out for my parents. I said, if you buy me this horse, he has to be black. If you buy the horse, our backyard, I'm sure it has grass. You don't have to cut the grass, Dad, right? Then, right, right? He'll fit in the backyard, and, and he'll be great. And, you know, I can ride him to school. We could probably even get rid of our car. I had the whole plan worked out. Why now is the perfect moment for us to buy a horse? I've been waiting my whole life for that perfect moment to come, and I haven't bought a horse. But my parents, they see a lot more than I do. They, they understood the bigger story that, that getting a horse probably wasn't the ideal thing. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, probably didn't really want a horse that bad. I just loved the movie and wanted to be the boy in the movie. But anyways... But I think the bigger story in that is that I believe God is always working in our waiting. The story of Advent, we, we, we celebrate this moment of waiting. That's what Advent is about. It's a season of waiting and anticipating what God is about to do. Before Jesus was born, there were what they called 400 years of silence. The last prophet had again declared, the Messiah is coming. And then for 400 years, no other prophets rose up. And in that time, I mean, there was a lot of things that happened. Children of Israel found themselves in captivity over and over again by different, different empires and different, different groups that would rise up, whether it was the Turkish army. And then you look at then the Greeks would come. And some of the greatest civilizations in history had risen and then taken captivity over these children of Israel. And then you get to Rome, right? And Jesus comes in this moment. And I think it's easy for us to look at it and say, man, you were so silent. You weren't participating in our story at all, God. Yet, actually, if we stop for just a moment and look, 
that was a Kairos moment. Look at it from a purely scientific perspective. The things that had happened in that 400 years set up everything for Jesus to be born. The different empires that had risen at the time created connection and trade. The Romans had built roads that, that moved across the entire known world. And Jesus enters into this story at the perfect moment where that message could be taken and shared everywhere. It's almost like God had a plan. It's almost like, like he works in these incredible Kairos moments, these incredible moments that, that bring everything together to the fulfillment of the ultimate story of, of his story of love. So how do we kavah well? How do we wait well? All right, wrapping it up, getting close. How do we cultivate the right conditions for the fruit of patience to grow in our lives. There's a few things we can do. We can kavah well by remembering that this is a verb. That there are some things that we can do on a regular basis to wait well. Number one, I'd say focus on what God has done. Anybody here ever have God show up in your story so far? Where he's answered a prayer, worked in some miraculous way? where he's done something for someone you know personally and you've seen him do something that only he could do. The more that we focus on that, it shifts us out of that despair that sometimes we find ourselves in while we're waiting. The more that we're reminded that he is God, creator of heaven and earth, capable of anything. Nothing is impossible for him. It begins to shift us as we wait. And in that space, I think the other part of it is the actions that we now live in this story of praise. I love, you know, spending time worshiping God. And it's certainly the the singing and the worship singing stuff. But I think it's more than that. I think it's everything in our lives. Making space on a regular basis in our lives to give thanks, to, to praise God for what he's done. Praise and worship, I think it shifts us to a different perspective. Because often in our lives we get stuck here looking at the problem like this. As opposed to what I find in worship is this incredible invitation for us to come and to connect with the God who's higher, bigger than all of that stuff around us. So to wait well is to praise well. Third one. I think spending time in his word and expecting a breakthrough is another powerful, powerful way that we can wait well. Psalm 130, verse 5, it says this. David was saying, he said, This is why I wait upon you, expecting your breakthrough, for your word brings me hope. There's something about digging deep into those things that become the foundation of our lives, especially when everything around us seems shaky. Standing on his word is a powerful way to kavah well, to wait well. And I think the fourth thing I would say, there's probably lots of other things, but, but is be aware. I think stay alert. For, for some of us, waiting has this way of putting us to sleep. For some of us, I think that's the story of the church right now. We've been waiting for this story of what we've been calling revival for years. And for some of us, if we're honest, we've kind of found ourselves falling asleep. Waiting is about staying alert and being vigilant. That's the the active part of kavah. 
And the important part of that waiting, though, and being aware is recognizing that God will probably show up and do something very different than you're expecting. That was the story for Israel, right? That they're waiting for the Messiah to come, this mighty Savior, and he comes as this lowly baby. And then he comes and grows to be not what they expected at all. Most of them missed completely the story of that Messiah they'd been waiting for. He was right there. They weren't aware. They weren't awake. Their eyes weren't open. Seasons of waiting are the moments that God births something beautiful. It's kind of woven into his story of creation. That some of the most beautiful things he makes on this planet, he does with such care and precision and timing. Now, the, the sucky part about sometimes this thing is that he likes to use pressure to make some of those beautiful things. Think about diamonds. Years and years of pressure on this rock that turns it into something so valuable and so beautiful. You think about butterflies. I love butterflies. I know it's kind of weird for big guy that does MMA, but I like butterflies. But I love the story of the butterfly more than anything, right? It, it, it's so weird that when you think of this squishy, mushy, multi-legged thing crawling, that somehow I think they do understand that there is more to what they were created to be, and they climb into the branch, create this little chrysalis, and in there there is a ton of transformation that happens. They go from being one thing to being something completely different. But the story, if you, if you, the scientists have actually assessed the pressures that build up inside of that chrysalis, it's incredible the amount of pressure. Because if you think about the size of a butterfly when it comes out versus the space that it was cramped into, that the pressure at the end especially is so intense that, that it's within a few hours in some cases. That, that if it comes out a few hours too early, if it can't take the pressure it actually dies. If it goes a little too long in there, the pressures are so great it actually dies within there. There's this exact moment that it's supposed to come out and be what it was created to be. I think that's true for us. I think that's true for the church right now. There's some intense pressures on what it means to be the church. You're getting me back for this, right? Yeah. We had some mic issues when he was at my church. (laughs) Sorry. I think this is a moment in the story of the church, though, where there are some pressures that are pressing on us. I don't know if you've ever felt that culturally around us in the story of what it means to even to to stand up and say, I'm a Christian today. There are some pressures on us. But in this space where the pressure is increasing, I actually believe that God is in the process of molding us as his church to be something so beautiful, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle created in this space of pressure. This season of Advent, there are four themes that we celebrate. What are those four things that we focus on? And there's a fifth one that's just the Christ candle. What are the four things that we talk about in Advent, though? Anybody know? Peace. Prophecy, which is hope, right? Prophecy, that which you guys did last week. So hope. Peace. What else? Love. Yep. One more. Joy. These four incredible things that we we try to focus on in this season of Advent and waiting. Can anybody remember the first four fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. 
peace, long-suffering. Okay, so that word is, is that sense of patience. But patience is all about kebab. When you read that, that verse that I read earlier, Psalm 40, verse 1, in this common English Bible, it says this. Where it said, I waited patiently for the Lord. It says this, I put all of my hope in the Lord. And he leaned down and he listened to my cry. This season, I actually believe, is, is an incredible invitation for us to begin to cultivate the, the story of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Of love and joy and peace and hope. That those things that the Spirit wants to release are not just for us. That's the beautiful thing about fruit. It can be shared, and those seeds can grow into more and more of the same thing. May you and I in this season spend time cultivating the right space for, for hope to grow. In my community, I give homework every week. So I don't know if you do that, but here's the homework for you. It's a space for us to... To, to dig a little deeper, believing that the Spirit wants to drive some things home. It may have nothing to do with what I've said. It may have one thing that I've said. But I, I like to challenge us to spend some time this week digging into what we've heard. So, so I want to challenge you. Read through Galatians 5, 22, 23, that list. Here's even the bigger challenge. If you don't have it memorized, memorize it. Simple little chunk of Scripture. But it's powerful because it's describing the decor of the Holy Spirit in your life. That what people should interact with in your life should be this incredible story of love expressed in multiple ways. The season we talk about preparing him room, I think it's about making room in our lives as well for the Holy Spirit to come in and to decorate our internal story. To allow him to, to build in us the fruit that will be something that the world can encounter and can share. I actually had this picture as I was coming here this morning of us walking out of this space, reminded that we are basically trees bearing this incredible fruit. And I don't know if you've ever seen an apple tree that has more fruit than the branches can hold. What happens? It like falls off everywhere, especially when you shake it. There's lots of shaking going to happen in our lives, but I'm so excited because I believe we're going to be dropping fruit everywhere. Everywhere we go, remembering that, that we are the church. And so I've been teaching, teaching the, uh, that, that nursery rhyme another way, the thing, the steeple thing. And, I, and for our community, this is kind of a, a prophetic word from the Lord in this season for us. We start with this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. We open the doors and we release the people to be the church. And so the sense was, says, we are the church, and God has blessed us with incredible spaces. It's something that we probably do take for granted, that many other forms of the church meeting other places don't have. So, so we can celebrate that we have, maybe not a steeple, but, but we have a building. But at the end of the day, is, the end of the day, our story is about us opening the doors and being the church that literally God uses to transform our city to transform our neighborhoods, transform our families. As the Spirit of God cultivates 
this fruit in our lives that, that, that literally changes the world. Because what the world needs is love, sweet love. Because God is love. May you and I in this season of, of, of Christmas, of Advent, may we discover all of the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit as we wait and long with an anticipation for him to come again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And for any of us who are in seasons where the waiting is painful and uncomfortable, I pray that you would encounter the incredible story of God's perfect peace and love and joy and hope in the midst of that waiting. May you and I continually remember that God is always working in our waiting. Can I pray for you guys? Would be all right? Lord, we thank you. Thank you that, as we read and we're reminded, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this season, we remember and celebrate that you are Emmanuel, God, with us. And I thank you for that truth. That that story of, of you being with us is expressed in your spirit that dwells in us. That you don't dwell in houses built by human hands, but you dwell inside of us. We are your temple. And I thank you for that story. And I pray that as, as each of us steps out of this building, and as we step into the fullness of, of the chronos, the normal time of life, may, may your fruit of your spirit flow from our lives. May it just fall off of us. That everywhere we go, we would be known as your people of love. That they would encounter the fullness of your spirit expressed in love in every single one of us. And so I pray in the spaces where any of us are struggling with any of these fruits. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to, to learn how to cultivate the atmosphere where we can experience and, and eat from that gift, of that, that fruit that you release in our lives. Lord, for those needing peace, Lord, help us to learn how to rest and, and have fun for joy. Lord, all the different ways that you release your gifts in our lives, your fruit. We thank you. I pray that, that each of us, as we move forward in this season, Lord, would be moving as one, in tune with what you are doing in your church. And so we thank you. I thank you that I can stand here, a part of this community, this part of your body this morning. And I just pray your blessing upon it. I pray that every man, woman, and child in this space would encounter the fullness of your love, but, Lord, that it would flow through them so naturally. Lord, you've, you've strategically positioned this part of your body right here in this city right now for such a time as this. And I pray, Lord, that as we wait for the fullness of you to reveal what that looks like, Lord, we lean into to your presence. We worship you. We thank you for what you've done, trusting, Lord, that you have a purpose and a perfect plan and a perfect time for what you're about to release. So I pray, may we be one in this community, in your church here in this city. May that oneness translate into something so beautiful and so powerful, even in the midst of the pressures that are on us as your church in this city. Lord, I thank you that that oneness that you're shaping in us is, is about to be released as something so beautiful. And so, Lord, we thank you and we trust you and we commit to follow you. May you have your way. May your kingdom come and your will be done here in this community 
in each one of our lives, in our homes, and in this city. Lord, may they experience, may we all experience heaven here. And may we share that with the world around us. We ask this in your name. And everybody said, Amen.